Coming up on Word Matters, the etymology of an art form. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. During the first half of the 20th century, the world of jazz had an immensely productive run of introducing slang terms to the language. Even the term jazz itself has a fascinating, at times contentious, history. Here are Amon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, our in-house experts, to define the lexical history of jazz. Peter and I may be editors at Merriam-Webster, and we have been for many years involved with dictionaries, but I think it's safe to say that for both of us, our real passion in life lies elsewhere, and that is with the great American art form known as jazz. We can happily spend hours and hours listening to this music and talking about it and asking questions. Who is the most underrated mid-century piano player from Detroit? Was it Alice Coltrane or Terry Pollard? And why don't more people listen to Blue Mitchell and Tony Friscella and a thousand other topics like that? And when we're recording these podcasts with Neil and Emily, we do try to tone it down a bit so as to not unduly alienate our coworkers. But they're not here today, so we can give free reign to our jazz geekiness. And before we go on, I do want to say and establish at the beginning that jazz is in some ways a problematic word, and that's part of mm -hmm. what we'd like to talk about, as well as the history and meaning of the word itself and some of the related vocabulary. I want to read our definition, which I think you actually wrote, didn't you, Peter? No, not the word jazz. Uh, oh, you wrote swing. I'm yeah. sorry. So well, we define jazz as American music developed especially from ragtime and blues and characterized by propulsive, syncopated rhythms, polyphonic ensemble playing, varying degrees of improvisation, and often deliberate distortions of pitch and timbre. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that this sense of jazz that we are all more or less familiar with was not the earliest use of the word. The word started off, well, we don't know exactly, but the earliest written evidence that we are aware of for the word jazz, which the OED defines, and we do not, is they define it as energy, excitement, pep, restlessness, animation, excitability kind of energetic. Right. It was often used in a baseball setting because several of the first citations that the OAD has tracked down, which are from 1912, are about a pitch. Ben's jazz curve. And the citation is, I got a new curve this year. I call it the jazz ball because it wobbles and you simply can't do anything with it. That was a citation from the Los Angeles Times in 1912. Wow. And another one from 1912 in the same newspaper. Henderson cut the outside corner with a fast curve, also for one strike. Benny calls this his jazz ball. So the first time it's spelled with two Zs and the second time it's spelled with two Ss. This is a not uncommon variation in the early years yeah. of jazz, both for music and other related senses. A lot of these early citations are for baseball or for something like it. But by 1913, we do start to see a slight broadening, at least away from baseball. And I found a citation from a Canadian newspaper called the Winnipeg Tribune. And it reads, and the chorus, they must have put the J to jazz for they teamed with pepper and ginger. And this was in reference to a show that was written by Lou Fields called Hanky Panky, which had run for several years in Chicago, which not coincidentally is one of the early several birthplaces of jazz. I don't think that that was an actual reference to jazz music, but it does exhibit some kind of broadening out of baseball into other fields and musical field. So by 1915, we see it in Chicago, again, where the early citations are for that. And it's in reference to jazz as kind of relates to blues. It's mm. distinctly jazz as a form of music. 
And again, in these early uses, sometimes it's spelled with two Zs, sometimes it's spelled with two Ss. There are a lot of things that we just don't really know about jazz, and there have been so many theories about where the word Yeah, comes the word from. itself has an etymology that is unknown. Is that right? right? But yeah. that has not stopped many people from <laughs> kind of coming up with theories sure. with varying degrees of certainty behind them. But one of the problems with it, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, is that for much of the history of the English language, when we have a word written down, it's almost certain that that was used in spoken form first. And we don't know how long before, but particularly with a word like jazz, which was either colloquial or slang or referring to a kind of music that was not yet established, it could have been a significant period of time that it was used in spoken form before it came into written form. And so not only do we not know when it was first used, we don't even really know what the first actual meaning of it was. Sure. There's an interesting point here about sports in that those early uses, because sports journalism was often written in that less formal tone than news articles. Yeah, absolutely. And often kind of evoked spoken English. Right. So where does jazz come from? Well, we don't really know the etymology. I mean, in fact, we definitely don't Mm -hmm. know. There have been a lot of theories about it. But what we do know is that it was used for baseball and for excitement and some things like that. But once it got applied to this musical form, this black American music, it just became cemented to it. And not without problems. And one of the issues with this is that there have been a lot of people over the the decades who have really disliked the use of jazz to refer to this music. Again, this is something that we have talked about before as well. In some cases, people just didn't like the way it sounded. They thought it was kind of like goofy or whatever. There was this band leader who played some kind of, you know, society music, jazz. Meyer Davis, he had a contest in 1924, and he wanted to come up with a new word for it. And 7,000 people sent us suggestions, and the, the winning entry was syncopep. So we can kind of see why that really didn't take off. Although pep keeps that idea of energy. Right, <laughs> it does. And it is syncopated, but yeah. you can see how you can put two good elements together and come up with a really bad word. Right, and the basic fact that you certainly implied, which is that the reason jazz took off was that it named something that was new. Like we right. needed a word for this new kind of music. It's still, in 25 years later, Downbeat, the jazz magazine of the 20th century, was by far and away the most prominent jazz magazine. They had another contest to replace jazz, and they came up with Crew Cut. This was in 1949. Sort of as opposed to long hair, which was the term used for lovers of classical, classical music. music. Yeah, okay. Right, right. Long hairs. <laughs> Boy, that's a long walk. To right. Go. <laughs> Before long hairs was used for like hippies in the 1960s, sure, it was going used... back to the early 20th century, long hair was used for classical aficionados music. of classical music. So there have been various movements there, but I think more significant in terms of the dissatisfaction with jazz as a label have been the the actual practitioners of jazz itself. So, for instance, Duke Ellington famously despised the word. He didn't like categories. He had that famous phrase, beyond category. The fact is, of course, he had such a cosmopolitan vision of his job as a composer that he didn't limit it to an idiom of any kind. Absolutely. Miles Davis, similarly. He hated that word, I think. Right, he hated it. This has not gone away. If anything, I would say it's intensifying. I mean, Nicholas Payton, this great trumpet player from, yeah. from New Orleans who plays in a variety of genres and styles, he's astonishingly proficient in a wide range of musical styles. And he despises the word jazz, and he has suggested the acronym BAM, B-A-M, standing for Black American Music. Black American Music. Yeah. And that position that he has is itself not without controversy. 
But there is, again, a definite body of practitioners and other fans of the music or just of people who are concerned about this as a topic who think that jazz is an inapt word. It makes me think of the word label. I think people have trouble with labels. And I think it's important to mention that Ellington and Miles, when they made their statements, which would have been in the late 50s or, or after, it was after a point where jazz was a mature form, was not just an art form, but also a business. They didn't object to the label until the label seemed to limit them in some way, not just in terms of sales, but in terms of artistic vision. The idea of thinking of labels, because you could say that there were a lot of probably new words from this new music in the 1920s and 30s coming into English when you would call it jazz. And then in the 30s, the genre was really called swing. And then in the 40s, sure. the avant-garde was called bebop, bebop or bop. Right. So that you actually had these little mini labels within the bigger label that added new definitions to existing words or new words themselves to the dictionary. The vocabulary kind of keeps compounding on itself. listening to Word Matters. We'll be back after the break with more from Peter and Ammon on musical terminology. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Amon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. Jazz, it's, it's not a young musical form anymore. Not I mean, anymore. it's over 100 years old. And it is difficult to think that any musical form or any genre that encompasses everything from Art Tatum to the Art Ensemble of Chicago. It also includes Art Farmer and Art Blakey, to mm -hmm. say nothing of Art Van Damme, who's the real outlier <laughs> in that particular group. These are all entirely different stylistically and in many yes. other ways. You would never listen to Art Tatum, this genius piano player, and then listen to the Art Ensemble of Chicago and say, oh, these are the same musics. It's almost as though jazz had to grow to encompass both of those things, but those things were kind of not recognizable yeah. from each other's vantage point. Right. One of the things that, of course, is inextricably bound up in this are issues of race. Of that this started off as such a distinctly black American art form. Going back to James Reese Europe, the great composer and, and conductor of early 20th century. And he was a band leader in the U.S. Army during World War right. I. He, he, right. he was with the 369th yeah. Infantry, the Harlem Hellfighters yeah. in Europe. It's also interesting that this is black music. This mm -hmm. is black American music. But there are elements of Europe in there and that there is European instrumentation or things like that that were imported over. I mean, it's obviously been influenced from other directions. I'm not a historian of the actual music, so I don't want to embarrass myself here. But in terms of language, looking at it, it's understandable that there would be 
concern over race. And I can certainly understand the concerns that practitioners like like Miles or Nick Payton or Duke Ellington, that they would have feeling that they are being in some way diminished or demeaned Mm -hmm. by this label, which is confining. One of the things that's also interesting is that the people who have had the most issues, they're not just outspoken, they're prominent practitioners. Mm-hmm. These are at the forefront of the yeah, art. The music. And so it has a, a real significance there in terms of they should be described in a sense the way that they want to be described, which is as musicians, as composers, as what they want. But that leads to the problem of how we define the word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because we are a dictionary and we do have to take into account in many cases the point of view of the person or the people being described. That is common practice. You have to do that. But we also have a duty to define words as they are used. And that's where we run into a real thorny situation sure. with words like jazz because, well, what is jazz? Is it Kenny G? A lot of people yeah. would say Kenny G is jazz. Sure. And then a number of other people would say, no, he is not. So does our definition reflect Kenny G? We can't really get that granular with our definitions. How would you say that we go about crafting a definition? Is it that we're trying to define the word as a broad range of the educated public uses it when discussing this music? This is always the question. It's a philosophical problem to me because you have a definition like this has to encompass everything that it possibly can and exclude things that are clearly not. And that means that you're always walking this tightrope of trying to describe something as generally as possible, but still holding kind of a barrier or a line between this and something else. It's a neighboring genre or something. If we were to compare this definition to blues, for example, you know, how would it compare? Our definition of jazz strikes me as being kind of classic Merriam-Webster mid-20th century definition. It's very technical. It has big words in it. And sometimes these things are maybe less accurate than we like. I encountered the word swing, and there's a funny story that I can tell about that definition because the great jazz critic for The New Yorker magazine, Whitney Balliot, who was a great writer, he's the one who once wrote that jazz is the sound of surprise, which Uh is a pretty good definition itself. You know, there's a kind of journalistic cliche of beginning an article with Webster's defines X. And of course, everybody knows that's exactly what you shouldn't do in a good article or a good student paper. But he did it once in the New Yorker magazine, which is this place of great writing. But he kind of turned it on its head and said, Merriam-Webster's definition of the word swing is this. And he quoted it. And then he tore it to shreds. (laughs) He said, it's wrong for every reason. And I was reading this as a kind of junior person at Merriam-Webster as a lover of the music. I thought, well, he has a point. It was an old definition. It was too old. And it needed to be refreshed. But let me read you what he saw. Swing. Jazz played usually by a large dance band and characterized by a steady, lively rhythm, simple harmony, and a basic melody often submerged in improvisation. Oh, that is so bad. It's pretty bad. Oh, that's And there's also this sort of whiff of condescension about this, that, you know, basic melody means somehow simple. I mean, I feel like we can paraphrase Mingus here and say that's three or four shades of bad. It's pretty bad. It's really... (laughs) Simple harmony again and basic... They almost seem, again, condescending, and the truly artistic side of swing was played by small ensembles, but it could be played by a duo. It could be played by Art Tatum sitting alone. And so I felt that there were lots of things about this definition that could be improved. So starting with his criticisms, I drafted a definition, and here's what I came up with. Jazz that is played as by a big band with a steady beat and that uses the harmonic structures of popular songs and the blues as a basis for improvisations and arrangements. Much improved. Now, it's not poetry, but I wanted to incorporate the fact that swing could be written out 
or it could be improvised, which the first one did not give that kind of possibility, that as by a big band shows that big band is a typical and common way of encountering swing, but not the only way. And steady beat refers to the actual swing beats themselves that typically don't change tempo within a performance. And harmonic structures was very important to me because the form of the music was completely missing from the earlier definition. And so I submitted this to Fred Mish, the editor-in-chief, who was, it turns out, a jazz lover himself. And he put it into the dictionary immediately. He changed this as a plate change for the 10th Collegiate Dictionary. That must have been so gratifying. So it was. It was my first definition in the Collegiate Dictionary. That's lovely. But, you know, and that works, I think, better for swing, which is a very discreet form of Yes, it's easier to define than some. Absolutely, than it does for something as broad as jazz. But you reminded me of something when you referred to it as a classical definition, because as we were talking about previously, that labeling any kind of music can be difficult. We call J.S. Bach organ works classical, and we call Olivier Messiaen's organ works classical. (laughs) And there is very, very little in common between these two, except that they both play the organ. Just as you just expressed the difficulties that jazz holds as a... A genre term for its practitioners. The term classical music is problematic. Within the field, it usually refers to a period of time, often embodied by Mozart and Haydn, for example, uh-huh. that is largely understood to be between the Baroque and the Romantic. And yet we call the genre in its broadest sense. And by the way, the word Baroque, which we associate with Bach and Telemann and Handel, the word Baroque was never used to refer to music until when would you guess? Gosh, no idea. I know. It's, it's an interesting thing about labels. Uh, because I, I, we, I'm going to go with early 19th century. It's always retrospective. You wouldn't have known during the Baroque period that it was called the Baroque period. They didn't right. call it that themselves. They just called it music. No, about the 1950s. And the thing is about Baroque, it was a term they borrowed from architecture. So uh-huh. it was used about architecture and therefore art, uh, visual arts, but not about music. And because of the concordance of the timing that the Baroque architecture was the same period that Bach and Handel worked. Right. It's an amazing thing. Whether jazz is problematic nature as a word aside, in terms of vocabulary, one of the other things that I think is always interesting about it is the large number of words that it helped propel into the English language sure. or that it influenced. We talk about the gig economy, yeah. and gig came straight from you know musicians working dates yeah. in the 1920s. Things like cat in the sense of a fellow help. Cat, you know, yeah. you know, the cats came straight from the jazz scene. Some less obvious ones like schmaltzy. Well, schmaltz was, of course, in Yiddish, it referred to rendered chicken fat that you would pour on your food. <laughs> and that came in in like the 1930s. And right about the same time, right after it started being used for the condiment, it also started being used to refer to music that was seen as terminally unhip. Or excessively sweet, even. Right, And, and right. the term sweet was also used to apply right. to as was corn. Corny and corn, cornball, comes yeah. from the same kind of general wow. time period. And the um, word cool, right? I don't know about cool. What's interesting, and our friend David Skinner, who has written about dictionaries, also wrote about the word cool and the fact that unlike some of these other words like groovy or hep, or hip, cool is always cool. Cool right. is used in the 21st century. It was used in the 1950s and the 60s. It's very unusual for such a term that is essentially kind of informal to retain its youth through the decades. Right. There are other words that we kind of associate with jazz like hep and hip, which actually predate it. But there are a huge number of words that came into like, you know, and a lot of these are just, you know, genre terms like bebop, mm-hmm. which then started to get kind of an extended meaning. Like jazz itself, we use jazz in the sense of stuff, like all that jazz. All that jazz, all that right. Jazz. 
you know, one of the things that I think, though, that was interesting about this kind of vocabulary of jazz is that if we look at the, all the dates of when uh, the words started to come in, and again, we're, we're basing this on written evidence, which you sure. know, kind of goes behind spoken evidence. But from the 19-teens through the 1950s, it's this real rich period of jazz-influenced language entering. And then once rock hits, it just drops off dramatically. Wow. My feeling is that it's no longer like the dangerous young people's music. It's, it's no longer new. It's no longer new, and it's not the hip young thing for kids and stuff. So it's not contributing the same fecundity to the mm. language. But there were musicians in the 20s and 30s who kind of made little glossaries. Oh, sure. Cab Calloway was... I'm like looking that. at that one, and you can Google this. It's called the Hepster's Dictionary. And it is online, and it is an amazing document. I'm assuming this is from the 1930s. A word like blip, it's a blip, which just meant it's an extraordinarily great thing. And Armstrong was a high note on the trumpet. (laughs) I love that. A barbecue was a girlfriend. So strutting with some barbecue, that Louis Armstrong theme song, meant walking down the street with your partner. This is a really useful kind of glossary. Does it have chops? The first recorded use I ever saw of chops, referring to like a technical ability at something, was Armstrong. It's a trumpet player term, of course. Sure, you know, talking sure. And about... we do define it, but you know, it's not in this glossary. But the word chirp is given as a female singer. Uh-huh. <laughs> Canary was another term used in the swing right. era for the female vocalist. Right. I think Callaway's dictionary is great, but one of the things that I have noticed before is that there was a lot of fascination with kind of jazz lingo, especially in the 30s and the 40s. I have seen several instances of musicians kind of saying, you know what, like some of this stuff, we just kind of made it up. Like, <laughs> like our, nobody really says these words. And it, it reminded me of that great story where the New York Times, when grunge was all the rage, <laughs> and they called up a record store in Seattle. They got some kid behind the counter and asked what the kids were saying these days. And whoever the kid was cheeky enough to just make up like 20 <laughs> totally nonsense words and phrases, which the unfortunately credulous reporter from the Times then printed <laughs> as the vocabulary of what kids are saying these days. It reminded me of that Mez Mesro clarinet player who used to play with Armstrong as mm-hmm. well. And he had an autobiography called Really the Blues. And at the back of it, he has a glossary of jazz mm-hmm. slang or slang at the time. And a lot of those, it's possible that they existed only in spoken form. But there are some kind of improbable entries. Like he is half past the unlucky is 1230 at night. <laughs> half past the unlucky. Which I think has a real ring to yeah. it. It sounds very poetic, yeah. but I'm skeptical that it ever entered into like natural use. How many people really said that? Right. Yeah. But the fact is, of course, that was not just new music at the time. It was also a big business. It was, in other words, the popular music right. for a, a time. We look back at jazz of the 30s and 40s kind of as an art music from our perspective today because that's sort of where it's situated in our musical horizon of the 21st century. But at the time, it was actually the dance music, the pop music, the radio music. So one of the things that's also kind of interesting about it with the language is that at one point when I was looking for early uses of a lot of these jazz-related words, I noticed a a curious thing, which was that in some ways it was easier to find in European publications, particularly British musical magazines. Although we've talked about this time and again, and, and it's well established that jazz was a primarily black American art form, you wouldn't know that by looking at a lot of American musical publications. Because they um, weren't covering it. No. They would have pictures of Armstrong, and then they'd have, you know, 50 shots of Benny Goodman. But if you look at publications like Music Maker or Melody Maker printed in London, London. you see a lot more pictures of Coleman Hawkins and Billie Holiday there than you wow. would 
until the 1940s or 50s over here. It was not a clearly accurate representation of the people playing the music. And sometimes that was reflected in the language used to describe so it. So the, the early citations of some of these words come from, paradoxically, British publications. Right. You can find them here, but I think they're not as often found in, say, mainstream publications. Yeah. And there were some French jazz magazines as well. I always kind of say that the French are obsessives, the British are eccentrics. You know, the French obsessives of this period, the 30s and the early 40s, before the war, they welcomed these jazz musicians. And it's worth saying, some of these people, like Coleman Hawkins and Louis Armstrong, black Americans, they would come to Europe and be revered as artists sure. and were kind of surprised to play concert halls and, and even were shocked that the chairs weren't cleared for dancing because they were used to playing for dancing. You have to realize is the Europeans had only listened or learned about this music on record. They had no idea that this was social dance music. They heard it as an art form. And so it kind of changed the perspective of a lot of these musicians and made them think quite correctly that they were artists. There's a term that the French came up with that fits in between categories. The kind of jazz that I would call straight ahead or mainstream jazz, not aggressive modern jazz, not avant-garde, not retro, not traditional, but straight ahead, 50s, 4-4 time, Oscar Peterson, Stan Getz, really kind of conventional jazz. The French call it, and this is the actual French term, le middle jazz, middle jazz. And they have actually invented a term for a sort of slice of the music that we don't have in English using English words. Right. But if you ever said middle jazz to an American jazz musician, they probably would have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. But if you say hard bop or post bop, they would kind of translate it as much, more or less the same yeah. thing. The limitations of labels, the limitations of dictionaries, we try our best to write a definition that will encompass everything and not exclude any possibility. And that becomes a very difficult thing to do. Right. I think especially with this particular word, which is in some ways close to undefinable, because what does the word mean? It means different things to different people. And if we have so many people in this day and age who have very strong feelings about the meaning of jazz are just they don't have any knowledge about what it is because it's not as popular as it was mm -hmm. in the 1930s. Or also there have just been so many genres of jazz that have come along. Again, it's over a century old. And what's astonishing about it is always how fertile it's been. And I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about he, he was a jazz piano player, and I, I used to be a jazz saxophonist. And, and we were talking about what we listened to. And I said, well, you know, I, most of the guys I listened to are between 1958 and 63 or 65. And he said, oh, I'm only between 64 and 71. Like, these <laughs> are entirely distinct things. I mean, like, it's really close chronologically, but so but much overlap. has changed. You know, if you look at any given artist, like you look at Coltrane between 1958 and 1966, this is eight years. This is a blip. He's gone through so Huge. many stylistic changes. It's incredible. And so a label just doesn't work. One of those things that Duke Ellington said out of exasperation, which is there are only two kinds of music, good right. and bad. If it sounds good, it is good. Yep. know what you think about Word Matters. Review us on Apple Podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey and Adam Maid. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.